Property Academy Podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Adrian McCall. And today on the show, we are joined by a very special guest. Kyle Brooklyn from Informed Property Inspections, Christchurch. And what we're talking about today is building inspections. And it's quite funny because I'd already organised for you to come in, Kyle, when Darren messaged us on Facebook and says, can you do a podcast on building inspection reports? You know, can you talk about the costs, the tips, the hints? Is the market regulated? And what do they cover and what don't they? So that's really great that you're joining us. And we're very appreciative, Kyle, because that's everything we're going to cover today. Good as gold. So essentially, a building inspection report covers everything from the foundation right through to the top of the roofline and everything in between. But the terms and conditions of such need to be determined before you start the contract because a lot of the inspections vary. So it's always good to get a sample inspection report from the inspector so you know roughly what you're going to be in for and that way there are no surprises or no gaps in the report, which is a big thing. And you've also got to have you know, restricted access. You've got to know what's going to be covered. And Kyle, say I get an inspection report from you. I get an inspection, a sample one from somebody else to try and weigh up whether I use you or the next company down the road. What should I be looking for within those reports to make sure that nothing's being missed? Because I don't know. One of the best things is look for standard English. Because a lot of legal terms, builders, jargon, you can get lost in translation. So it's really important to understand what you're actually going to read. So I do what's essentially a blue-collar styled report so that anyone from a lawyer right through to literally anyone can pick it up, read it, understand it, yet if they've got a problem, they can come straight back to me anyway. And I suppose that's quite good because then if you're looking at this sample report and it's in kind of plain English, that means that when you eventually get the report, you'll understand what it contains. Yeah, correct. And I also do essentially a fast key throughout the report. So any minor issues are underlined in black, Maintenance is in green, earthquake is in red, and serious structural issues are normally in highlighted yellow. So it keeps it really quick and easy. Lawyers love it because they can flick through my reports within five minutes and get a quick understanding of whether it's good enough to go or not. And what does it cost roughly to get a building report? A standard small house from sort of zero up to 100 square metres, we're looking at around $400 plus GST. Mm -hmm. A large house up around sort of 400 square metres rolls in somewhere near $900 plus GST. Okay, so it's pretty affordable, especially when you think about, you know, if someone buys a car for $20,000, they go to the AA and get a cheque done. It seems to be that these are one of the things that people miss off a lot in due diligence. And Kyle, do you know whether, obviously you're based in Canterbury, you serve the Canterbury region, do you know how that cost changes around the country? Is it it more expensive in Auckland or more expensive in Wellington, for instance? It it is slightly more expensive in some other areas, but that generally depends on the travel component going into it. Most of the inspections tend to be the same, because most of the inspectors have got relatively fixed costs with their overheads of insurances and so forth which is something we need to talk about after as well. Yeah, well, can I get into more of what Darren's asking here? Is the market regulated? It is. It's essentially a voluntary type system at the moment, but there's one big thing. If you actually say that you do it to the national standard, you have to. And the national standard means that you've got to carry one million of professional indemnity insurance. If you don't carry that, yet you've stated you do it to the national standard, you're totally liable. So this is something people should be looking out for, this kind of key term, the national standards. Yep, so the national standard is actually NZS 4306-2006, and that should be on every report. If it's not, it should only be deemed as a basic builder's report or a mate's report because it doesn't actually have any real legal standing. So if I'm understanding this correctly, if I engaged someone like yourself and got a report done and something significant was missed, a la it was a leaky home and it hadn't been picked up, there's some sort of recourse 
in the event that I had to then go and remediate that property afterwards. Yes, there certainly is. Right. There's always restrictions on yes. how far that goes, yes. but there is definitely recourse that can be taken. Yes, okay. I want to know what some of that recourse is. If a property inspector goes through a house and they state that the floor levels are perfect or within the MBIE guidance, which we're all pretty familiar with in Canterbury, and the floor is out well outside, he could be liable for the full cost of reinstating it back to the level. Wow. As so, the inspector? As the inspector. So, so do you do your own floor levels? Yourself? I certainly do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I've actually just dropped my unit in for calibration again, and Accurate Instruments always uh, service mine. They do yes. a pretty good job, but yes. you just have to be confident with what you're doing. And so for anyone outside of Canterbury, this is particularly important for any property that's gone through the earthquakes, and obviously now Wellington as well, because a property can be sloped because of you know subsidence in one part of the house, and if it's over 50 million, what, what are the guys? The 50 mil is a general rule that most people sort of adopt, but the actual critical one is the gradient produced. Yes. So you're allowed to be 10 millimetres out per two metres, which produces a gradient of 1 in 200. Yes. And if it's outside of that and it's deemed to be earthquake related, it should be re-levelled. You know, there's always historical issues in Christchurch because we are basically on an old swamp. Yeah. So you've got to take into account where the house is, what factors may have influenced, and you've got to look for consequential damage because you can't just have movement without damage. Yes. Unless it's had rotational settlement of the ground and so forth. So, okay. yeah, lots how, of things to look at. How do you, so as a building inspector, if you go through a property and you do an inspection today and the floor levels are fine, and then three years later someone goes through and says, oh, actually, no, these are out, and it turns out that there has been subsidence, how do you prove something like that? Well, every single inspection is time-stamped and benchmarked, essentially. Yes. So I'm not proving the house is going to be perfect forever. Yes. It's essentially on the day I was there, yes. we might have had a total variance of 26 millimetres, but I will have photos showing the location of the test yes. and the reading as well. So a lot of reports just simply say it's 32 millimetres over the entire house. Right. But there's no way of actually quantifying where, yes. what, and when. Like, yeah. Yes. So one thing that I know is really important for any property where you've got monolithic cladding or something of that sort of nature, invasive versus non-invasive testing. Do you do your own moisture testing? I actually pass most of that on specialists now because it is such a picky field. Yes. You really want to consider thermal imaging, which is also its its own wee topic that lots of people agree and disagree. Yes. And that's looking for evaporation, which generates cooling effect. Yes. And you can end up with cold spots on the cladding. Okay. Let's just take that one back a bit for anybody who is listening and it went a bit over their head. So what are we talking about when we're talking about invasive versus non-invasive testing here? Yep. So invasive testing is when you would normally go from the interior cut a hole in the jib plasterboard to observe the timber framing, and you'll typically do that around a high-risk location like a, the side of a garage door or low-ground clearance issues or something like that, and you'd normally back it up after you've already had a non-invasive moisture reading which was elevated. So it's just to you know, basically double-check the condition of the frame. Mm-hmm. But the problem is with some of those styles of cladding, you can actually have a leak that happened five years ago and hasn't happened since, and you can do an invasive test in an area that appears to be dry. There could be dry rot. Yes. So yes. it is really quite hard to identify. So you do have to put some pretty serious thought into it. And what does that cost to get done? It's very specialised and it can range and start normally around sort of twelve hundred and fifty dollars upwards. Yes, yes. Yes. And it's not something that I would recommend anyone go out and buy a property that is in the at risk period, what is it two thousand and four, give or take? They tend to be cheaper in the marketplace. Yes, yes. But there's the risk that goes along with such. Yes. So 
it all depends on your level of risk and risk acceptance. Sorry, where I was going with that is you wouldn't buy one of those without getting one of these tests Correct. done. Just yep. because there are properties out there which you can absolutely buy and will be okay if you maintain them correctly. So certainly things like regular painting can ensure that the risk is mitigated as much as possible. However, you want to know exactly where it's at. How does the thermal imaging work? So thermal imaging essentially finds evaporation. And what we're doing is you, you look over the exterior cladding of the house and you're looking for anywhere the moisture may have gone and been trapped and then on a nice warm day it's going to evaporate its way out. Yes. So that's going to end up with cold patches on the surface and from that you can do further investigation and go, right, it's around a crack in the cladding, it's around another known issue and therefore you would then go over to your invasive. So invasive is really the last thing you need to do to just double-check the condition. And so when you're doing just a regular report and you're going around and checking a 100-square-metre house, uh, it's just a standard villa, what kind of things are you looking for? So you're looking at door and window clearances, you're looking at the operation of all the light switches, you look at the electrical wiring in the house. A lot of villas have the old two-strand wiring and you don't have any earths on the light fittings. So a lot of people over the years upgrade fittings to metal, Mm. yet they should only be done if there's an earth in place. So there's all sorts of wee things you check. And also I want to ask you, Kyle, Darren said, why don't real estate agents just get one building report and give copies to prospectors buyers, aside from the economics of doing so? Now, one of the reasons that we often recommend getting your own limb report is that if your name is not on the report and there was something wrong with the land information memorandum, then you can go back to council and challenge them. Is that the same for building reports? Building reports can be provided like pre-auction and sort of you know marketing campaigns, but they should be left as an open and then they should be named to the party, and that normally incurs a fee through the office, of course. Yes, if I'm understanding that right. If I was selling a house by auction, and therefore lots of people were going to get the same report on the same house and not be sure whether or not they were successful, what I might do as a vendor is pay for that report myself, leave it blank, and then anyone that wanted to use that for their insurance company or their bank or their solicitor would ring Kyle's office in this instance, have it addressed to them for a nominal fee, and then they have use of that report in the future, right? Yes, that's correct. And now tell me, with a building report, is that useful if I'm going to then apply for insurance and I'm in one of these at-risk areas like Christchurch or or Wellington where there's been earthquakes? Yes, certainly, because every single inspection report I do, regardless, has floor levels. Yes. So that's one of the key factors that all the insurance companies are looking for. And that's critical for marketing and insurance. And I don't think that anyone could insure an existing property in Christchurch that's been through the earthquakes without having a building report, unless there was some pretty substantial stuff from EQC, I it was being rebuilt. Yes, yeah. but even so, you're still best to set that we benchmark. Absolutely, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And last one from me as well, Kyle, that I want to ask is, and I know the answer to this, but for the benefit of all the listeners at home, what's the difference between a builder's report and a healthy homes report? Do some building inspectors cover that side as well? Some do, but it tends to be included into the report in a roundabout way because we're looking at all the insulation, we're looking at all the ventilation, extraction and so forth. So there are set requirements for you know, ventilation and extraction into the reports. So I always put a note in there stating that you would need to add extraction into the bathroom to comply with the current tenancy codes. So if things like that are missed out, it can affect your bottom line later when you do your investment property. Interesting. And does that even go so far as to considering the heating that's required for certain properties? I tend to send that off to people, but I'll certainly look at it. But you've got to do quite strict calculations as to window size and so forth for the heat pumps and so forth. Yeah. 
Fantastic. And look, Kyle, I'm just so grateful that you're coming in to talk about this because after over 400 episodes, we probably haven't gone as much into actual building materials and talking about the structures of investment properties, which we're really excited to do and we will continue to do in the next couple of episodes that you're here with us for. Look, let's wrap it up there. But I also want to say a big shout out to Darren who sent this question in. And we're really grateful over the last couple of days since we launched our new text number, which is 5522. We've had so many different questions being sent in from listeners and I love it when you text us so if you have a podcast topic for us or you just have a question about property send us a text our number is 5522 and we'll always send you a text back let's wrap it up there but please don't forget to rate review and subscribe to the property academy podcast really helps us get the message out there and hey you know what to do send us a text 5522 Thanks for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. And I'm Andrew Nichols. And we'll be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.